Father, thank you for Matt. Thank you for the time that he has spent preparing this sermon for us. Um, thank you for all that you want to say through him to us this morning. We pray that we have ears um, ready to hear your words and hearts ready to receive your message. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Lara. Don't think I've ever been prayed for with a hand on my hip before. Wonderful. Morning, everybody. We doing all right? Yes, the energy is palpable. I love it. So, over the last couple of weeks, we've been doing a little special mini-series in the book of First John. We've looked at the light of God, we've looked at the love of God, and we're wrapping it up this week thinking about the life of God. So, I might be about to date myself here as a bit of a child of the 80s. I know I don't look that, that old, um, but um, when, I was, uh, when I was growing up, there was this particular moment that happened for me when I was about sort of 10 or 11, and I started to hear this little phrase coming around my life, and it was this. Get a life, Crossman. You know, I started to hear this when I went to school, because I wasn't actually the coolest at school. I mean, horrible hair and really terrible NHS classes were only become cool kind of about 10 years later with the hipster movement and stuff. But I used to hear this phrase, get a life, Crossman. You know, teachers can be so cruel, can't they? Um, but usually that criticism came from me when I was sort of just going a bit, being a bit keen <laughs> and sort of suggesting things to my cricket captain about how he might do a better job. You know, just constructive feedback from my point of view. But when I look back at it now, I actually think there was something going on there. I felt a bit challenged. I was like, look, I'm just being myself. I'm just trying to react to what's around me. But somehow everybody else is saying, you're not kind of getting it right. There's more for you. You should be like freer or happier or something like that. And it reflects to me that I think actually even to today, we're like a society that is obsessed with life and lifestyle. And I want to just reflect on it at the moment. There's this little phrase that's got into our sort of culture, which is this, live your best life. Like, you're not just, it's not just enough to exist, is it? It's not just, you know, pay the bills, have a job, enjoy life, have a nice Sunday lunch and a walk. No, you've got to live your best life. You've got to be the thinnest, most attractive version of yourself. You've got to be the highest earning version of yourself. There's a whopping great sense of pressure out there from the society around us. And I think, you know, I, I like when I do preaches, I like to sort of dig into the sort of text and find out where things come from. So I've done the same with this phrase. And it comes from Oprah Winfrey. <laughs> Early 2000s, there was an edition of her magazine where she had this phrase, live your best life now. And you know, look, it's got huge traction. You probably can't see the detail of this, but if you search for the hashtag, live your best life on Instagram, it's 5.9 million posts there. So this is an idea, it's like a sense out there that we're not just here to live, but we're here to live something more than what we are. But the problem is, by like any objective measure, we're not really doing a very good job, are we? <laughs> we might be living longer, but are we living better? You've only got to look on the BBC News website and have a quick scan and think, oh yeah, are we all living our best lives all around the world right now? The stuff that we're facing, the stuff that our kids and our families and our communities might be facing, a mental health pandemic, as well as the pandemic that we went through, incredible conflict and security under threat wherever we are, refugee crises. Yeah, the hashtags are nice and all that. But actually, if we look below the surface, our society and the way that we're living, we're not just delivering on that promise, are we? We are, in what way are we living our best life? So those kind of problems, those issues, they're all like there in our minds, aren't they? And that's what I want us to hold like, as we go in to think about our passage today, as we think about 
what John is inviting us into, the life of God. So John, he writes a lot about life in this letter. It's one of his main themes. And what we're going to do, we're going to walk through our passage, John, uh, 1 John chapter 5, 1 to 13. We're going to walk through it line by line. I'm going to point out a few things for you. Now, whenever we go on a journey as a family, we give Barnaby a little checklist of things to look out for so he stays on message and on track and doesn't get bored. So I'm going to do the same for you. I'm going to give you some like waypoints to be looking for as we read through this passage. So you might have been picking up on this when you've been doing your D group as you've been uh, reading this passage um, or the whole of the book of First John all the way through. There's three tests. Okay, so what John is trying to do in this letter, he's trying to give us reassurance of who we are in God. He's trying to give us that sense of um, a real knowledge deep within us that we're loved and known by God who made us and loved us. Okay, so that's his aim. But there's kind of three tests that will show you if you're really getting it. And they are these. A faithful confession of who Jesus is. So that's the first one. Faith, a faithful confession. Love for others, particularly love for others in the church community, but kind of wider. That's the other test that John brings in. And then finally, obedience to Christ's commands. So as we're going through uh, the passage now, have a little look out and see if you can spot them as they come. Okay. So 1 John chapter 5, it begins like this. Everyone who believes that Jesus is Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands, and commands are not burdensome. Okay, so the first thing to say is John is not an A to B to C kind of guy. (laughs) He's more of a swirly kind of getting towards the top where we're going A to B, let's run to F and then back to A a bit and then to Q, just to bring that in and then back to A and B. But with John, you get higher and you loop round and by the end, you get to this incredible kind of summit where you're able to look down on everything and see what he's been getting at. So this is our first little swirl round, if you will. <laughs> What's these themes he's trying to bring in? Did you spot there the first thing? Who believes that Jesus is Christ of born of God? So the first thing out of the gate, we've got faith, haven't we? And then we've got the reality of your life as a Christian. Is it worked out in the way that you are living and the choices that you're making? This is all building towards what John really wants us to grasp, this great reassurance as we come towards the end. And I just want to dwell on that, just that last little line, you know, his commands are not burdensome. You might be sort of fresh to church today and you're thinking, not burdensome, Christians, the way you live your life. You know, you can't sleep with whoever you want. You can't drink wherever you want. What on earth? But no, what John is saying is something about like living according to God's law, having the power of God enabling you to live that life is not a burden on you. And I was thinking about this the other day as I was, uh, I, I don't know if this is too much to say, but I occasionally double park. <laughs> Particularly when I'm picking up the family, I don't want to pay like for half an hour or two hours parking down in the town centre, so I might double park while I'm waiting for Annie on Barnes to come out for something. And if I'm double parked, I'm always looking over my shoulder for the traffic warden. That command is very burdensome to me because I'm disobeying it. <laughs> if I pay for the parking, I'll high-five the traffic warden and ask him how the kids are doing. So there's a sense here for what John is trying to get to us. Actually, if you're living with God and aligned with who he is, then what he's asking you to do shouldn't feel like a burden. Okay, let's move on to our next little section. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. 
faith there again. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So you can see this circling, this looping. We've gone a bit higher again. Faith in God, belief in who he is. And this sense of overcoming. You know, no New Testament writer, apart from John, uses this language more often. This kind of metaphor of like, kind of combat really, isn't it? Like a battlefield of your faith and that we can overcome And do you know what I love about this verse? You know, sometimes in the Bible, we wonder if it's kind of real or just sort of made up. But John would have lived three years with Jesus, like very close to him, listening to his every word. And he would have heard Jesus say things like, take heart, I have overcome the world. And here it is reflected again, all these years later, that teaching of Jesus just echoing through eternity in what John wants us to understand. Okay, so Jesus has overcome the world and we can have faith in that person. So now we get to, and I quote one of the commentators, not just the trickiest part of this whole epistle, but the trickiest part of the entire New Testament. Thanks, Deb, for giving me this one on the preaching series. Love you too. Um, So let's read verses six to nine then. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water and blood only, but by water, oh sorry, God, water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater, because it is the testimony of God which he has been given about his son. So John's again, he's leaping around, he's building towards his most important point. And what he wants you to get from these verses is how reliable what he's about to say is, okay? He wants you to understand how reliable everything that Jesus is going to talk about that Jesus has done is. So he's giving you this testimony. Now, what is this testimony? The water and the blood. It all sounds a bit kind of gothic for a Sunday morning, doesn't it? Well, the commentators kind of agree on this. There's, there's, There's a little bit of disagreement about what this means. It's a bit confusing, isn't it? But the simplest way to think about it, and this is what most people seem to think, is that the water means his baptism. So when Jesus went into the River Jordan and was baptized by the disciple John, and then his blood, his, his death and his crucifixion. So something about Jesus' faithful baptism and Jesus' faithful obedience to death on the cross and his rising again. That's the testimony, the reliableness that we can base everything else that we believe on. Okay. So a really helpful way of thinking about this verse is actually the, um, the paraphrase, the message. So I'll just flash that up for us to read a little bit, because I think it really helps dig into it and ground it a little bit. He puts it like this, Jesus, the divine Christ, he experienced a life-giving birth and a death-killing death. Not only birth from the womb, but baptismal birth of his ministry and sacrificial death. And all the while, the Spirit is confirming the truth and the reality of God's presence at Jesus' baptism and crucifixion, bringing those occasions alive to us. And what's better than a double testimony? A triple testimony. The Spirit, the baptism, and the crucifixion. All three in perfect agreement. Okay, so we've done like three laps, I think, now. We're looping up towards something. We're getting towards the top, the top-down view that John wants us to have. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony, the testimony of the Spirit, the baptism, and the blood. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they've not believed the testimony of God has given about his Son. So incredibly stark language from John about how much this matters, 
about how much our faithful confession of who Jesus is matters, about how much our lives lived in obedience to him matters. It's kind of life or death stuff, isn't it? Black or white, you're either in or you're out, John is saying. Okay, so we've built up, we've looped round. I think we've, we've got um, the pilot in the room, in, um, in Will. We've looped up and we're at cruising altitude now. This is the testimony. This is what it's all been building to. This is the whole of the book. All five chapters come to this moment. God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. How do you know if you have something? A few years ago, we were all thinking whether we had COVID or not, weren't we? Maybe some of us do now. And we looked at the symptoms, scratchy throat, loss of smell, a fever. You knew you had COVID when COVID was doing COVID-y things in you. <laughs> how do you know if you have life in the sun? Well, how do you know if you have hope? Hope is doing hopey things in you. You confront situations with a different attitude, don't you? How do you know you have life? Well, you have the sun if it's kind of doing Jesus-y things in you. If kind of acts of mercy kind of flow out of you. If kind of acts of love and sacrifice flow out of you. That's what John's saying. Whoever has the sun, if you're in God like that, then that stuff, the pattern of your life will begin to change. This world, you know, and our years on it, they aren't everything, are they? John wants us to know that we're going to live on with Jesus in the fullness of God's presence forever, in a renewed heavens and a new earth. And we actually know that's what John's final book of the Bible is all about, isn't it? The book of Revelation talks to that glorious future of this renewed heaven and renewed earth that we're going to dwell in with perfect relationship with Jesus forever. So eternal life then is our goal and our aim. John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Not just as a concept, but as a deep soul knowledge of everything that God, through Jesus, has done for you. Let's just think about life for a minute. What is, God, what is John really getting at here? Why is this the summit of everything he's been talking about? Why is eternal life the most wonderful, glorious thing that he wants to bring home in this message? Well, there's different levels of life, isn't there? So in our front room, we've got a plant, not a very looked after, cared for plant, it must be said. Uh, but that plant is alive through no, no fault of ours, I think it's sort of managed to survive. That plant, it, it can take, you know, I don't know, I'm not really a biologist. Light happens, it photosynthesizes or something, it feeds itself, it can grow. But if you take that plant and put it in front of the Taj Mahal over in India, it wouldn't make the difference if I then moved it to the Raj Mahal in Shirehampton, the Curry House. It wouldn't have a clue where it was. Okay. It can't perceive anything about its surroundings, right? Then you get like an animal. You get like a sheep or a cow or something like that. And that will be able to perceive where it is. It, it's alive a bit more, isn't it? It's like another level. You might have a dog or a cat that can like recognize who you are and sort of rub against you or whatever. But that dog or a cat can't sit down and reflect on its day and go, oh, do you know what? I think I was a bit selfish in grabbing all the treats today. I should probably go and apologize. Well, no, that's you, isn't it? You're another level of alive. You're more alive than a dog, a cat, or a cow. And one of the ways um, this preacher Tim Keller was talking about this, actually, and I loved his sort of analogy. He says, actually, what John's saying is when you grasp eternal life, 
when you grasp everything about what Jesus has done for you, it's like another level again. It's a quin- it's be like almost like a, a cow suddenly understanding the emotional depth of an Ed Sheeran song. Like we get transformed in some way to understand loftier concepts than we were able to do before. So things like, like forgiveness, things like sacrificial giving, things like holiness, things like purity, they don't really make much sense to you before you get to know God. But as soon as you do get to know God, wow, suddenly you're transformed. It's like going from being, uh, the, uh, David in the Psalms, he says, this process from being not knowing God to knowing God. He says, I was senseless before you like a brute beast. Like I was a dumb animal before you, before I knew you. And we're lifted up and transformed in God's presence to that new level of reality where we're able to see things from God's perspective. We need to embrace what Jesus has done to achieve that for us. And there's no better way for me to sum this up than looking at John's gospel, his gospel that he wrote earlier, the story of Jesus. And, and John wrote the same, same author that wrote our book here. After Jesus said this, he took to, looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that you, he may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given to him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So the world is looking for its best life. And John says there's a whole new dimension. Life eternal, one for you at the cross. God didn't go into the effort of making you and me for that existence to be over in a cosmic heartbeat. He wants to live in love and relationship with you and everybody here and everybody in this community and everybody in this country, ad infinitum. He wants to live in loving relationship with everything that he's made. So that is why it's so central. That is why John placed it at the summit of his letter. So how do we think about this in our daily lives then? How do we ground this today? Just a couple of thoughts from me. First thing... Have you really considered that the life you have in God today is going to last into eternity? Have you stopped and made some life choices recently that look a bit different from the people around you who don't appreciate this? It can happen to us all. You know, we, we come to God for the positive stuff, for the good stuff we need right now. Forgiveness, lifting shame, freedom from guilt and healing. It's all good stuff. But I think we do ourselves a disservice if we just focus on that short-term stuff and don't think about the future. God calls us deeper and further into the life of God that lasts forever. And actually having eternal life gives you the ultimate freedom, doesn't it? Because it, it radically expands your reality. It radically expands that what's possible around you. So just imagine, so let's say you're at work tomorrow, okay? And let's say you're getting pressured into doing something that you're really not comfortable with. Like maybe it's immoral or maybe it's just deceiving the customer or something like that. And you know that if you push against it, you might risk your job. Well, if you don't have eternal life, if you don't know who God is, then your job is like your whole world. So you might be pressuring yourself to stay there and go against the grain of your better nature and lie and cheat to keep your job. But if you have eternal life, what can man do to you? You're joined with Jesus for eternity. He's your everything, your provider, your heartbeat. He's the apple of your eye and he's going to overcome the world in you. You'll live very differently, won't you? 
when you have that eternal perspective on everything that comes up, when the struggles of life come up, when that eternal perspective can get you through in a way that kind of self-help just can't. Secondly then, have you thought about it too much a little bit and have you placed everything towards the end of your existence and actually you're just kind of living through your days a little bit kind of bumbling through and thinking it'll all be all right one day. Have you made like Jesus and eternal life just a bit of fire insurance? (laughs) Just something that you like keep Jesus on a shelf for a bit of a rainy day and actually forgotten about the fullness of God that you could have in your life right now. I love that reference that John makes to the baptism there, the, the, the testimony of the baptism, that sense of actual renewal you can have right here, right now, today, if you believe in God. Sure, it's eternal life. Sure, we're thinking about living and dwelling with God forever. But that future starts now. You can break that habit now. <laughs> you can see that person saved now if you pray for them faithfully and serve them. So yeah, we can get stuff on this world, but praying a friend into the kingdom or something like that is infinitely worthier, isn't it? So how do we ground it? Well, we have to bring it into reality now. You know, the truth is, going back to my get a life moment and the living your best life framing, we all know, don't we, and society knows that we're built for so much more. Otherwise, we wouldn't have that kind of burgeoning podcast or self-help movement. The Bible says we're created for eternity, Connecting with Jesus, we finally become what we're made to be. But we don't have to wait for that life to be in the future, do we? We can see it coming into our lives and our communities now. And I think that's what John wants us to think about. That's why he was writing to encourage this church with the message of eternal life. You know, what would our communities begin to look like if we all really grasped this? I was thinking this week, what would the Houses of Parliament look like? If every politician there, all 680 of them, was so self-assured in who God was, if they knew what their eternal future was, that they didn't have to play to the crowd for votes or say controversial things, what kind of laws do you think we might be passing in our parliament if we had a bunch of people who knew who they were in God? I was thinking as well, what would an A&E department down at the Bristol uh, Royal Infirmary look like on a Friday night? If everybody going out was like, yeah, I'm doing great, God loves me, and I don't need to seek cheap thrills. (laughs) Maybe Friday night A&E would be the quietest night of the week if everybody knew who they are in God. You know, this can transform societies, this idea of eternal life. It's not just a cop-out. It's not just fire insurance. It's the power of God to transform our societies right here, right now. So what I love to do when I, when I get to speak to you, and it really is a privilege, I like to try and sum it all up in one little sentence for you so you can screenshot it, put it on the back of your phone to remember for the rest of the week. And I've come up with this for this week. For those who believe in Jesus Christ and know the only true God, eternal, abundant life begins here and now. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. And that through faithful confession of who he is and alignment of our life with his, we can know a true, eternal, abundant life right here, right now. And I pray for all of us that that power would begin to transform us and lead us through into levels of freedom that we've not known before. We pray for 
that blessed assurance that Jesus is mine. That even in this moment of worship now, we would have a foretaste of that glory divine. Amen. Amen.